podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Wednesday, February 16th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access whatever it is you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star ratings across the board. Check out libertyshield.com. And use the code Router50 to get your router half price. LibertyShield.com, Router50, half price router. And away you go. Get watching whatever it is you want. If you're an UK expat and you want to watch BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, whatever it is, the Liberty Shield VPN is what you need. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off. I also want to give a quick shout out to NI Classic Shirt Company. You'll find them on Twitter, NI Classic Shirt. A great bunch of lads, great service, keep you up to date the whole step of the way, every step of the way, and get you what you want very, very quickly. I've had a really good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. At NI Classic Shirt on Twitter. Right, folks, uh, we had one Premier League game last night. Manchester City beat Brighton 2-0 at Old Trafford. Um, A good win for United, no doubt, but when you dig into the performance... They played some good football at times. But if you look at their biggest chances in the game, the Sancho chance, both goals really, they all come from really sloppy Brighton errors. Adam Webster and Lewis Dunk are two very good centre-backs, very reliable. But last night, both of them had absolute shockers. They were really, really poor. Brighton lined up with a diamond in midfield. And early on, they were getting the better of United. United might have had a little bit more in terms of possession. Maybe they had a few more chances. But when it came to decent positions, decent opportunities, I thought Brighton were the better team. And if it wasn't for David De Gea, Jakob Motor would have put them one up with a great header. But it was a brilliant, brilliant save from De Gea to to deny him. Sancho had missed a good chance earlier than that. But again, that came from a bad Adam Webster mistake. It it felt like it was going to be another one of those games at Old Trafford where United weren't going to do anything in the game. Until six minutes into the second half, Yves Basuma got caught dallying on the ball just outside his own box. Scott McTominay robbed him. The ball went across to Cristiano Ronaldo. I really don't know what to say about the Brighton defending here. It's it's such schoolboy stuff. There's a, a crowd of defenders. And they all just seem to jump out of his way. It, none of it made sense to me. You give Cristiano credit for the little shift of the ball. And it's a great finish. There's no, no question. The finish itself is brilliant. But this is very much an example of Brighton being masters of their own demise. Like, Basuma, there was no reason for him to try and dribble the ball where he was trying to dribble the ball. It was very, very careless and very unlike what we're used to from Brighton, as was the you know the error from Webster. That wasn't his only error in the game. And then, four minutes later, Lewis Dunk, just another moment of absolute madness. 
gets robbed by Alanga and then drags him down. Now, he was initially given a yellow card. The entire United team surrounded the referee to demand a red card. The referee reviewed it and decided to go with the red card. In the appeals from the United players, he booked Bruno Fernandes for remonstrating. Um, Bruno wasn't even the most vocal of the remonstrators. Harry Maguire had well, not sprinted because he doesn't really sprint, but he had he had made his way up the pitch to jump around, waving his arms as if you know he was maybe in a bit of pain or something. Um, Cristiano had himself a big old tantrum about the whole thing, but Dunk was sent off, and I do think it was the right decision. Uh, I do think he did deny uh, a clear goal-scoring opportunity for Alanga. You could maybe make an argument that Webster could have got across. It would have been very tight, but I think in the circumstances, the red card was probably the right decision. From there, United took control of the game, and they were the better team. And on 97 minutes, they won a free kick deep in their own half. Brighton switched off completely. Pogba played the free kick to Bruno Fernandes, who ran from inside his own half with absolutely nobody making an attempt to take the ball off him. Um, did really well to dummy the shot, drop the keeper, and then tap it home. But all in all, Brighton should have done a lot better in this game. United weren't great, but it is a very good result for them. It pushes United back into the top four. They're now two points clear of West Ham with the same amount of games played. United are now unbeaten in five in the league, though their form hasn't exactly been inspiring. The performances certainly haven't been much to shout about. And this is their easiest month remaining in the season. They play Leeds away next. That's on Sunday. Then it's Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. Then Watford at home in the Premier League. So they should win their next two league games. They should go to Leeds and win. They should beat Watford at home. There's no real excuse in either of those games. But then it's City. Then it's Spurs. Then it's Liverpool. You've got the second leg against Atletico sandwiched in there as well. Then it's Leicester, who by April may well have sorted themselves out. Then it's Everton, and it remains to be seen what Frank will have done there. Then Norwich, a game they should win, obviously. Arsenal away. Arsenal, you would expect, will still be in the mix for for fourth. And then Brentford. And then their final three games, when we go into May, Brighton away. Chelsea at home, and Crystal Palace away. That's a difficult last three. April is awkward. May is difficult. March is flat and horrible. This is the month that they need to get as many points on the board as possible, and they need to win those next two games. Dropping the points at Burnley... And against Southampton, I think will prove quite costly for United. For Brighton, this will be a disappointment, but they're still ninth. They still have a comfortable cushion on those below them, four points ahead of uh, Southampton. And I think top half is absolutely the aim for Brighton this season. They get Burnley at home at the weekend, a game they should win. Then Aston Villa at home. I think that's a game they'll think they should win. Then it's away to Newcastle. Again, that's a game they should win, but this is Brighton, so predicting three wins in a row is a big, big risk. If they could take seven points from those three games, I think that's a really strong run for them. Especially having, you know, having beaten Watford last time out, it'll be 10 points from 15. I think they'd take that. It does get tougher. They get Liverpool, then they get City, then Norwich, again, a game they should win. But it's an awkward and difficult last seven games. Arsenal away, Tottenham away, Southampton at home in a derby, that'll be tough. Wolves away, United at home. Leeds away, we don't know what the situation will be with Leeds at that point. And then West Ham at home on the last day. That last seven games is one of the more difficult runs that anyone has left. But in the six games that lead up to it, there are 
There's four winnable games. Burnley, Villa, Newcastle and Norwich. They're winnable games for them. Whether they can win them or not remains to be seen. Either way, they're going to be in the division next year. That's That, as a minimum, is what they have to do. Like When they kick off their season, staying in the division is the most important thing. Everything else is just ambition. But the demand is to stay in the division. And if they can do that, they're doing well. Brighton are a small club. They operate in a small budget. Uh, Tony Bloom has backed them very, very well. But I think they'd really like that top half. I really do think they'd like that top half finish. It would be a big thing for them. And they're still in a good position to do it. They just need to pick up as many points as they can over the next over the next spell, the next six games, and then after that, pick up whatever you can. The league is, is looking interesting. There's still something of a title race. If Liverpool can beat City, they beat Leeds and beat City, we'll get a title race. If they don't, we won't. Chelsea will finish third. You've got, I still think this, I think now there's five teams for that fourth place uh, finish. United, West Ham, Arsenal, Wolves and Tottenham. Tottenham are seven points back from United with three games in hand. They've lost three in a row. They really do need to get their act together. Wolves have won four of their last five. They're in the best form of any of these teams. They did lose to Arsenal, obviously. Then you've got Brighton, who look safe enough in ninth for now. And by safe enough, I mean just for that top half finish. Then you've got a real bundle. You've got Southampton, Leicester, Villa, Palace, Brentford, Leeds, Everton and Newcastle. With only eight points between them from 10th to 17th. So a good run could really push a team up the league quite substantially. The bottom three, Norwich, Watford, Burnley, but there are some game in hand, games in hand. There is obviously the possibility that Leeds continue to lose, that Brentford go on a, a really bad run from now to the end of the season, that Everton capitulate under Frank, which would be no surprise. Newcastle's form could take a downturn. One of those bottom three could string some results together. It is shaping up to be an interesting end to the season. And what's unusual about this for a Premier League season is the differences in games played. So you've got Man City, Man United, West Ham and Brentford have all played 25 games. You've got Liverpool, Chelsea, Brighton, Southampton, Crystal Palace and Norwich have all played 24 games. You've got Wolves, Aston Villa, Leeds, Newcastle and Watford have played 23 games. Arsenal, Tottenham, Leicester, Everton, 20, 22 games. And then Burnley just sitting there, 21 games. So four games less than what they should have played by now. So it is going to be difficult to figure out what happens until we get more parity in terms of games played. But it is shaping up to be a pretty decent end of the season, even if there's no title race. The, the battle for fourth is going to be fun. And I still think there's a couple of twists and turns to come in that relegation fight as well. I still don't trust Everton. I really don't. I saw a prediction model today that had them getting 40 points. That's 18 points from their last 16 games. And I don't see it. Southampton away, City at home, Tottenham away, Wolves at home. I mean, am I mad to think there's maybe one point from that? Watford away, West Ham, West Ham away, Manchester United at home, Crystal Palace at home. I mean, 
four points, maybe? Beat Watford, draw with Palace? Liverpool away, Chelsea at home, Leicester away, Brentford at home, Arsenal away. Three points? I mean, I don't see where there's 18 points for them. I really don't. I don't look at that run of games and see a lot of victories for them. I think Saints beat them, City will beat them, Tottenham will beat them. I mean, they could get a draw against Wolves at home, but would you would you bet on it? I wouldn't. You give them, say, one point out of that four, then four out of the next four, they should beat Watford. They could get a draw at home to Palace, but I don't see them getting anything against West Ham or Manchester United. So that's five points I have them taking. And then you go into the last five games. And again, where's the points coming from? They're not beating Liverpool at Anfield. They're not getting anything at Anfield. I think Chelsea will smack them. I don't see them getting anything against Leicester. They should beat Brentford at home. And then Arsenal away, potentially with top four on the line for the Gunners. I mean, that's eight points. Could maybe find a couple more for them, but I mean, that would be relegation. That would be them on 30 points. That probably is them going down if they do that. Or at least being, you know, right there to the, to the end, but I don't know. Newcastle, I mean, can you, three wins in a row is, is, is great, but They've got a difficult run coming up. They go away to West Ham, away to Brentford, Brighton at home, away to Chelsea, Crystal Palace at home, away to Spurs, Wolves at home. I mean, there's there's no easy points there. They do play Norwich. That's a game that they should win. But again, Norwich will be looking at that and thinking they can win that. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot more to be to be written about the bottom half of the Premier League table. And because of how bunched it is, just the potential that someone goes on an absolutely terrible run. And maybe it's someone outside of, you know, Newcastle or Everton. Maybe it's Leeds. Maybe it's Brentford who've been so poor. And maybe they get dragged back into it. I would say that from Palace up, you're safe. Palace are nine points clear of Norwich. I don't think anyone thinks Leicester or Villa or Saints are getting dragged back into it. I don't think Palace will get dragged back. But Brentford, Leeds, Everton, Newcastle, I don't think any of them could say with confidence that they're they're safe, that they'll be in the division next year. I mean, we've seen Newcastle put together three wins in a row. We saw Norwich put together back-to-back wins. If they could do it again, if Burnley could put together a run... Uh, Watford I have major concerns about and the fact that Hodgson came out yesterday and said that when it comes to attackers all he can really do is put them on the pitch so what Roy Hodgson is admitting is that he has absolutely no tactical game plan in the final third there is no coaching taking place for the attacking players for what happens in the final third There's no patterns of play. There's no automated moves. Nothing. It's it's go out there and express yourselves, lads. Which is a very English approach. That's basically the tactical approach of Frank Lampard. Um, That's really concerning. If I was a Watford fan, I'd probably be having a bit of a meltdown reading those words. Uh, We had some Champions League action last night. And Manchester City looked absolutely phenomenal. Uh, 5-0 win away to Sporting CP. Just dominant. Absolutely dominant. Really strong team. Ederson in goal. Went with Stones at right back. Diaz and Laporte. Canseo at left back. Of course, the reason for that is because when they have the ball, Canseo steps into midfield next to Rodri and forms a double pivot. 
and then De Bruyne, Silva, Sterling, Foden and Mares, who are all comfortable either wing through the middle or as eights. Raheem maybe not so much as an eight, but he can function there in, you know, in the pattern of play or in the flow of the game for a minute here, a minute there. All five of them consistently moving through the ship, the, the positions. No loss of momentum. Someone making a run every single time someone looks up for a pass. It was glorious to watch. It really was. Obviously, Walker is better in that role than Stones because he has that recovery pace. And obviously, he is more of a natural reason. It really is a natural right back. So, you know, when they're in the defensive set, he's more comfortable there. Stones looks like a fish out of water in that role when they lose the ball. But City, I thought, were really, really good last night. Uh, Mares put them one up. Silva, Bernardo Silva made it two. Foden made it three. Silva made it four. That was before half time. They came out in the second half in cruise control and Sterling made it five on 58. Uh, a really dominant performance. And once again, City showing. They're just better, flat out better without Jack Grealish on the pitch. The system just works far better without Jack Grealish. The other game last night, Paris Saint-Germain won, Real Madrid nil. I thought we were going to see an absolute belter of a game. Instead, what we saw was PSG dominating the game and not being able to get where they wanted to get in the final third. We saw 21 shots from PSG, 8 on target against just 3 shots from Real Madrid, none on target. Vinicius and Karim Benzema did not play well at all. And they were the the two that I thought were really going to cause trouble for that PSG defence. I thought especially Vinicius running off the back of Hakimi when Hakimi commits to a forward run. I thought Vinicius would have quite a bit of joy in that big open space behind them. Credit to Pochettino. I thought he got his team selection pretty much nailed. Uh, Hakimi and Mendes as fullbacks. Now, they are both wingbacks. They're both far more attack-minded than defensive-minded. But I did think they both played well. I thought they were both really aggressive off the ball. Marquinhos and Kimbembe. I mean, Kimbembe is so error-prone, but he did have a good game last night. And Marquinhos is just brilliant. Donnarumma was the goalkeeper, obviously. He went with a midfield three of Pereira, Paredes and Verratti. Now, the only change I would make, I would play Ginny Wijnaldum instead of Pereira. I think on the ball, he offers you more security. I think defensively, he's just more switched on. Pereira is more powerful, though, and he can drive you box to box. But Paredes and Verratti just, I mean, for me, they were just a level above what we saw from Real last night. Then he had Di Maria, Messi and Mbappe up front. Di Maria, I thought, had a, an iffy game. Some really good moments, some bad. Messi missed the penalty. It, Messi's never been a particularly good penalty taker. Um, Mbappe had a frustrating game. But he did come up late with the big goal to get them the win. I was surprised with... I wasn't surprised with Rail's approach. I was surprised with the team selection for that approach. I mean, there's no doubting... Edder Militao is excellent. David Alaba is one of the best players of the last decade. And Mendy's a good left-back. Now, I think Alaba, as a left-back, is the best the world has seen since Ashley Cole. But he has moved to centre-back. Obviously, that happened at Bayern Munich. He won a Champions League playing centre-back, and he has stayed at centre-back. And it is a doddle for him. He reads the game so well, and he's always been very good defensively. Very, very strong player. And his passing from centre-back is just outrageous. Courtois goal. But Carvajal at right-back is an issue. Now, they don't have a better option. It's part of the problem. They need to go in the summer and buy a right-back. It should be one of their priorities. Funnily enough, Ashraf Hakimi was theirs and they sold him. Um, but they need to buy a better right-back than Carvajal. In midfield, they went Modric, Casemiro, Cruz. Now, look, that that is the midfield that won them... Champions League's galore, it's won league titles, it's dominated pretty much every opponent it's up against. But if you're trying to sit in, if you're trying to be defensive and spring counterattacks, I don't think it's the right choice. And you look at their bench, 
and Valverde is sitting there, Camavinga is sitting there. And if you're wanting to be more solid defensively, you should have played one or both of them either side of Casemiro and kept Modric and Cruz on the bench to bring on. It's funny, when they tried to change the game, tried to become a little bit more threatening in attack, you'd look at the bench and see names and think, wow, like look at that depth, Eden Hazard, Gareth Bale, and then you think, oh, hang on a second, neither of them has done a thing in three years. So you're not exactly worried about them. But I felt like Carlo got his tactics right. He just didn't get his personnel right. I thought Camavinga and Valverde would have caused a lot more problems for Paredes and Verratti in terms of hassling them, harassing them, just forcing them back. And then when they got the ball, driving forward with it, having more of an explosive nature to the midfield, a bit more in terms of purpose, rather than Modric and Cruz, who, you know, at times can get a little bit lost in wanting to ping the ball about and not really advance play. I thought those two, just as more direct players, might have caused PSG some trouble. But it's a big win for PSG. Now, obviously, they will have to go to Madrid, which won't be easy. And Madrid, I think, will look at that and think, we're in a good position here. I don't think Madrid will be too concerned about bringing a 1-0 deficit back home. I think they'll be happy enough, especially with no away goals. They'll be happy enough to turn it into a basketball game at home and really go for it and try and try and blow this uh, PSG team away. Because as good as PSG you know, were in spells last night, there's still weaknesses in that team. Hakimi Mendes, as good as they are going forward, not great defensively. Kimpembe is error pro. And that midfield, you can play behind them. You can get in behind them. Paredes is a good positional player. He's not exactly the most athletic player in the world. If you've got runners going off the back of him, that's where he's going to struggle. Verratti, again, a good positional player, but from the physical side of things, he can be bullied a little bit. And he's had so many injuries over the last four or five years that he has slowed a little bit as well. Pereira gives them that physicality, but again, he's never been one who's good at tracking runs. You can run off the back of him all day. And that's why I thought, you know, a Valverde or a Camavinga on him in particular might have been beneficial. Um, because Casemiro obviously would have been playing the middle role. So one of Camavinga or Valverde would have been on the left side going up against Pereira on the right side. And Real will feel that at home, Vinicius and Benzema will, will do the business for them. But PSG have Neymar to come back into that team. Now, I think it works better without Neymar. Personally, I think the pressing works better without Neymar. Uh, all the clever journalists who predicted that Ginny Wijnaldum would not be in PSG's squad, you were wrong, uh, predictably. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. We will take our break. When we come back, we'll have a quick look at tonight's Champions League games and we'll get through the news and gossip and we'll be done. Speak to you in a few. Right, welcome back. So tonight we have two games in the Champions League, both 8pm kickoffs which bothers me. Why not have one at six and one at eight? So, but we can watch both of them. Um, RB Salzburg host Bayern Munich in the first one. Obviously, Bayern will be strong favourites to come through this group. Salzburg finished second in Group G, which was a very difficult group. They had Lille, they had Sevilla, and they had Wolfsburg. Now, Wolfsburg are having a bad season, but Sevilla are making a run at the title in Spain. And Lille were the defending French champions. And again, they're not having a particularly good season. But at the same time, they're still a team to be respected. They drew away in Sevilla. They beat Lille at home. They beat Wolfsburg at home. They lost away to Wolfsburg. Lost away to Lille. And then beat Seville at, Sevilla at home on the final day. So they had a strong home record. 
and a patchy away record. Tonight, the game is at home for them. The star of that team, without question, is Adeyemi. He is absolutely the one to watch. He'll wear number 27. But there's some very good players in this team. Brendan Aronson, the young American, very, very talented player. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Rasmus Christensen, if he's playing right back, another one very much worth your while. Benjamin Sesko, the big striker, he's one I quite like as well. This is a this is a Red Bull Salzburg team with talent. And they've got nothing to lose in this game. So it doesn't really matter if they get walloped by Bayern because no one expects them to do anything else. But these young players, Adiemi, Sesko, uh, Noah Okafor is another one, Seku Koita is another one, Aronson. These kids can go out and just enjoy themselves playing against one of the best teams in the world with a strong fan base behind them. I think they'll give Bayern some problems. Bayern, of course, at the weekend, turned in a very un-Bayern Munich type of performance, getting their bottom smacked by Bochum 4-2. They had gone one up, then went 4-1 down, and then Lewandowski scored late to make the scoreline a bit more respectable. But Bochum blew them away for half an hour. Now, I don't think we'll see as arrogant a team selection tonight as we saw at the weekend. I thought Nagelsmann disrespected Bochum in that game. Um, and Upa Meccano had himself a stinker. Nicholas Sewell didn't cover himself in glory. Uh, just having, having just announced that he's off to Borussia Dortmund. So, questions for Bayern. Questions at centre-back without, quest, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, if we look at Bayern themselves and how they came through in the Champions League, they topped Group E, six wins from six. They beat Barcelona 3-0 away. They beat Dinamo Kiev 5-0 at home. They beat Benfica 4-0 away. Beat Benfica 5-2 at home. Beat Kiev 2-1 away. And then beat Barcelona 3-0 at home to eliminate Barcelona from this season's Champions League and send them scuttling into the Europa League. Bayern are without question one of the best teams in Europe. There's there's no doubt about it. They're just a, a, a sensational team. But there are there are questions about them. I mean, if we look at their team, they've got a great goalkeeper in Manuel now. There's no doubt there. Alfonso Davies is excellent at left back, but you know, he may not play. I think he's injured, isn't he? So he's probably out. Uh, Lucas Hernandez played left back at the weekend. That's not his best position. He's a centre back. Benjamin Pavard has had to play most of his time at right back. He's a centre back as well. The actual centre backs that played at the weekend, Upa Meccano's having a pretty poor season. Sula is, is on his way out. There's definitely need for Bayern to bring in some new players at the back. A right-back has been a big need for them for a couple of seasons now. Bunasar has not worked out. Uh, Omar Richards went there on a free transfer from Reading. Hasn't really worked for him yet, but he's still young and maybe he'll get an opportunity. But a backup to Davies would be would be on the list as well. A starting right-back right back and a backup to Davies. Hernandez, Lucas Hernandez would absolutely be one of your starting centre-backs. The other starting centre-back position is an issue. I don't think Pavard and Hernandez works. Upa Meccano and Hernandez is something that might work, but Upa Meccano has still a lot of flaws in his game. He's still very, very young. Very, very young. He's still very talented. But he's got flaws he needs to iron out, and he needs a better right-back to be able to do that. Now, you, look, you, you can absolutely play Pavard, Upa Meccano, Hernandez, and Davies and have a great defence. But you're not going to have the balance on the right-hand side that you have on the left. But maybe that's what they need to do anyway. In midfield, I mean, Kimmich is there. He's one of the best in the world. They've got Goretzka, one of the best in the world. Behind them, Quarantine Talisos had so many injury problems that he, he struggles for rhythm. Mark Rock has never really been able to establish any sort of 
regular role for himself since making the move. Marcel Sabitzer hasn't done well this season. I think they've been quite open about their disappointment in how that deal has gone thus far. But when you start to look at what they have in the three behind Lewandowski, and obviously Lewandowski is one of the best players in the world, is no doubting his talent. But the talent behind him is where this Bayern team really shines. You've got Thomas Muller, who's the 10, and he's still a world-class operator. But they've also got Jamal Musiala, who can play that role. And then you look wide, and you've got Serge Gnabry, Leroy Sané, right wing, left wing, and Kingsley Coman, who can play both sides. It's very hard to look around Europe and find many situations where teams have three wingers of that calibre. Chupa Moteng is still knocking about as the backup to um, Lewandowski. That might be something they look to upgrade on. He's obviously you know, served his purpose well, but he's not of the calibre required for Bayern Munich. Now, there are some very, very talented young players here. Paul Vanner, young midfielder, 16 years of age. He's gotten three league appearances thus far this season. The youngest ever player in Bayern history. Very, very talented. Very highly regarded. Someone that might be just worth keeping an eye on over the next year or two as he continues to develop. I don't think they'll be shy about pushing him along in the same way that they've done to Musiala, who, you all remember how he did last season, 26 appearances, Six goals. That was at age 17. This season, he's already got 27 appearances. Actually, he made 37 appearances last season. 37. He turns 19 in 10 days. So last season, he was 17. Then he turned 18 in the February. He played 37 games. So while Vanner might not be one for as much for this season, next season, I think we'll see him really begin to get more and more minutes, though he's a very young 16, to be fair. He only turned 16 in December. So maybe it'll be the following season for him, but the fact that the fact that um, Nagelsmann has already shown such a big interest in him is very promising for that kid. Malik Tillman, young, young attacker, brought through their academy, very highly regarded. German under 21 international. Can play as an attacking midfielder or as a forward. He's another one that they'll be keeping an eye on. He's one that's, I think he was, he's the son of a, am I right in thinking he's the son of an American soldier who was stationed in Germany at the time? I think I'm right in saying that. Um, one to keep an eye on for sure. Tangai Nzozi. No, 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 no. Tangai Nianzu. Who was Tangai Koyasi when he made the move in the summer, but now he goes by uh, Nianzu, which is actually his given first name. It, um, it's very confusing for me. Um, he's, he's a huge talent. He's a centre-back. Only 19. But maybe he is the answer to their problems at centre-back. It might well be the best option they have is, is him and Lucas Hernandez. And what that means for Meccano, I don't know. But Nianzu is exceptionally highly rated. And I remember when he left Paris Saint-Germain to go to Bayern, PSG were, were very, very annoyed. Very, very annoyed that they couldn't extend him. Um, I think this one promises to be a fun game. You'd expect Bayern to win it comfortably. But do just keep an eye on Adiemi because I think next season we'll be hearing far more about him. Uh, this will be his last season with Salzburg. It wouldn't surprise me if Bayern tried to bring him in. He's been at Bayern before when he was a kid. He is a Bayern Munich. I don't know if he's a Bayern Munich fan, but he's certainly a supporter. He might not be sort of... They might not be his number one club. I think he supports a small local club, if I'm not not mistaken. But Bayern are definitely the club of his dreams. He's, he's said that before. He might go to Borussia Dortmund. They've been linked. 
But it wouldn't surprise me if Bayern just tried to muscle their way in and get him as a long-term successor to Lewandowski. He had a great group stage. One penalties galore. Uh, the other game then is Inter Milan versus Liverpool. Obviously, Inter second in the Bundesliga. Liverpool, sorry, second in the Bundesliga. Second in Serie A. Liverpool second in the Premier League. Inter reigning Serie A champions. They're not as good this season as they were last season. But they're still a good team. They've still got good players. The loss of Barella is massive. That's one they'll have to try and overcome. Um, whether or not they can, I I don't know. I don't know if they've got enough quality in midfield without Barella to do much of anything against this Liverpool team. That would be my honest opinion on it. Because... Brozovic is a quality player. There's no doubt about that. But he's a holding midfield player. The two ahead of him are where it's going to count. And Chalinaglu is a decent player, but he's not particularly mobile. He's not particularly good defensively. And the other one is going to probably be Arturo Vidal, who's 34 and can't really run as much anymore. And when he does sort of get ahead of steam up, he burns himself out in about five minutes. And then he needs to take five minutes of standing around doing nothing. So I'd be a little bit concerned about that midfield if I was an Inter fan. Inter finished second in Group D. Um, they lost away to sorry, lost at home to Real Madrid, drew away to Shakhtar Donetsk. Bad start, obviously. Then they beat Sheriff Tiraspol home and away, three one in both games. They beat Shakhtar two 0 at the San Siro and lost in Madrid. Finished second with 10 points. It was an easy group. They had no real excuse not to come through. So it was expected. But Simone Inzaghi has done a good job. There's no doubt he's done a good job since replacing Conte. He's not Conte, though. And as good as Dzeko is, he's not Lukaku. As good as Dumfries is, he's not Hakimi. This team is not as good as it was last year. De Vries has taken a step backwards. Handanovic has taken a step backwards. Brozovic still has, you know, the contract thing hanging over his head as well. So I, I'm not as worried as I would have been last season. I would not really like to play this team last season. Uh, I thought they just had a different, a different feel to them last year. They just seemed like more of a menace. Um, but it won't be an easy game for Liverpool. There's no doubt Liverpool are going to have to work to get through here. Obviously, in the group stage, Liverpool looked exceptionally good at times. They won six games. They did have their wobbles. They beat AC Milan 2-0 at home. They went one up, absolutely annihilated Milan for 20 minutes. Then somehow fell 2-1 behind, equalised, and then went on to win it on 69 from Jordan Henderson, who had had such a poor game that that goal was a big, big thing for him because he really wasn't playing well. But that goal really did give him a bit of a shot in the arm. Um, they beat Porto 5-1 away. They beat Atletico Madrid 3-2 away. And again, it was a weird game. They went one up. They went two up. And then they just started to really rock and shake. And conceded two soft goals. And needed a late Mo Salah penalty to turn that one around. They beat Atletico 2-0 at home. It probably should have been more. They... Went two up on 21. Atleti had a little spell, but Liverpool were very, very comfortable for the majority. They beat Porto 2-0 at home. Thiago scored probably the best goal of the group stage, and Salah made it two. And then they went to Milan and won 2-1 with a very much rotated team. That um, I think that was a bit embarrassing for Milan. They went, Milan went one up, Liverpool came back and won 2 1. But I mean, it was the vast majority of those Liverpool players would not make Liverpool's first team. Some of them wouldn't even make the bench if Klopp was picking his best 11. So, or his best, say, 90, wasn't best 20? Best 20. Um, yeah, I expect Liverpool to win tonight. I think this was a, one of the more favourable draws for them. And I think they'll be happy enough to take on Inter Milan and then advance beyond that. Um, obviously, City having won last night look very, very good uh, value to get through. I think 
the PSG Real game is still very much in the balance. Bayern should get through. Liverpool should get through. And then it's Benfica Ajax, which I think is probably the most even game of the top, the most even tie of the round. Chelsea should beat Lille. Atleti United is interesting. Neither of them are having good seasons. So that that's an interesting one. That and the Benfica Ajax game are probably the two most balanced of the of of the second set. Obviously, PSG Real Madrid the most balanced of the first set. And then Villarreal Juventus is the last one. I'm really not sure what to make of that. Villarreal are just a weird team. Anyway, that's tonight. Two games, both at 8pm. I'm going Bayern to win 3-1. Liverpool to win 2-0. Um, on to some news. So, if you're on Twitter, you see a lot of nonsense. A lot of rumours, a lot of conjecture, a lot of flat-out lies. A newspaper ran a report on Sunday stating that a Premier League player had been arrested in 2019 for domestic abuse or domestic violence. And some weird fella on Twitter started a rumour that that player was Dean Henderson of Manchester United. And Dean Henderson has come out, he's denied it. He says his family has been affected by inappropriate and hurtful rumours about him on social media, which he says have attached his name to totally false news. Speculation on social media had linked Henderson's name with a report on Sunday about the arrest of a Premier League player in 2019. I have a family who have been affected by this, so wanted to put the rumours to bed and move on, Henderson24 said on Instagram. Can't believe I'm having to do this, but I'd just like to address the rumours that have come to light in the last couple of days. There are some sad people in the world that have attached my name to such inappropriate, hurtful and totally false news stories. Henderson has one cap for England, has played five times for Manchester United this season. So, I I think we need to be really careful with stuff like this because it's very easy to tell a lie on social media and for that lie to somehow become an accepted truth. And it can have an incredibly damaging impact on players. And their careers and their home lives and everything else. And we already have enough situations at the moment where there are players who are going through legal processes for very serious things. We don't need to create fiction around other players and legal processes. When these things happen, and they happen for real, we will know. Because it will be reported. Police will issue statements, and the clubs will issue statements. Now, sometimes the clubs won't issue statements, as with the you know the player at Everton. He just hasn't been seen this season. Um, but in the majority of situations, there will be some sort of statement. Manchester United have done one, City have done one. It's happened in the past and other clubs have as well. We've obviously seen West Ham with the Zuma situation. So, you know, the Zuma thing, the Sigurdsson thing, the Mendy thing, the Greenwood thing, they're all appalling in their own right. There doesn't need to be any creation of more to point score. There doesn't need to be any comparison made of, well, you know, my club's player did this, and yeah, it's bad, but it's not as bad as what your club's player did. They're all awful. Yes, there are varying levels of awful involved, and you would certainly say one of them in particular is just... The guy is spending the rest of his life in prison if there's any justice to it. But we don't need to be point-scoring. 
And we don't need to hear, you know, all this criticism about, well, like the club's handling this wrong and, and why is he playing? Like, I get that people don't think Zuma should have been playing. I get that. But Mendy played for months after his first arrest. So why, not to say one is better than the other, not to say compare the situations, but why are you surprised when a club backs a player in that situation? When a club just puts results on the pitch ahead of everything else? Gordon Strachan said it years ago. There's no morality in football. No, 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 there's no ethics. It's a cutthroat business where all anyone cares about is results and money. We don't need to spend hours griping at each other and sniping and bitching and moaning and cry arson about, well, your club is more apparent than mine. They're all apparent. They're all awful. Every one of them, the way they behave, there's massive question marks. Liverpool, not that long ago, John Flanagan beat up his missus and Liverpool didn't fire him. They Now, they very quietly let him run out his contract, but he should have been fired on the spot. So there's examples for almost every club. You'll go through every club and you'll find something. And that's just what we know about. There's long been rumours that certain players who had extended spells out through injuries actually were having extended spells out because they'd failed drug tests, in-house drug tests, not ones by the FA. There's been rumours of that at Arsenal, at West Ham, at Liverpool, at a couple of other clubs as well. But that stuff all just gets buried as well. But we don't need to just start creating more and more of this. The problems are bad enough as they are without some kid on Twitter saying, oh, this was Dean Henderson because X, Y, and Z. Like, in 2019, Dean Henderson was at Sheffield United. So, I'd imagine it would have come out at the time if he'd been arrested in 2019. You know? Anyway, let's do the gossip and be done for the day. Um, we have two days worth. Chelsea defender Antonio Rudiger says the club will decide whether he stays or goes when his present deal ends in the summer. The German international has already received offers to join Real Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain. Newcastle will return to Sevilla in the summer. With a fresh offer for Diego Carlos. I, I did say I, I thought this would happen. I think they'll try and get a number of players represented by that agency because they've now established a relationship. That agency also represents, of course, Bruno Gomerish, who was their sort of big January signing. I was still waiting to see him sort of fully unleashed on the Premier League, but Early signs have been have been good, but Bertolucci, Sport, Bertolucci Sports represent both of them. They also represent Marquinhos. He won't be going there. But Matthias Cunha, Roger Ibanez, David Neres, Dodo, Danilo, Oscar, these are players to keep an eye on who could find their way to Newcastle or at least could be linked over the next window or two. Paris Saint-Germain are assembling a lucrative package to sign Paul Pogba. However, the 28-year-old is not ruled out staying at Manchester United. Uh, Manchester United have added Christopher Nkunku to their list of summer targets after interim manager Ralph Ranić urged the club to step up. This is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. Again, they don't know who their manager is going to be next season. And if it's a manager who does not play a player like Nkunku then he would be an absolutely pointless signing. Cristiano Ronaldo and several other Manchester United players do not believe Ranić has the ability to manage the club and is out of depth at Old Trafford. This is the same Cristiano Ronaldo who was more than happy to sign when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was the manager. 
Ranić's personal intervention persuaded Edinson Cavani to change his mind about leaving in January. This again is garbage. Um, Manchester City are among a posse of clubs keen on signing Nico Gonzalez, who has established himself at the new camp. So he signed a new contract last summer, but Marca are reporting that he might be sold because of financial issues at Barca. Um, it, it, I, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, Arsenal turned down the chance to sign Mauro Icardi from Paris Saint-Germain during the January transfer window. Um, odd. Odd. Chelsea and Albania striker Armando Broja is not ruling out a, way, a move away from Stamford Bridge in the summer with Arsenal interested in signing him due to his impressive performances on loan at Southampton. I did say when word came out that Southampton wanted to buy him permanently that I thought there would be many clubs in for him. Uh, Liverpool have been mentioned today as well. I don't know whether Chelsea would do business with Arsenal or Liverpool is, is the thing. They might prefer to sell him to a Southampton. Crystal Palace fear losing Wolf Zaha for a bargain price as they look to tie down the Ford to a new deal. He's at a contract in 2023. I think he'll end up staying. I hope he does. I really do. This is the most exciting time for Crystal Palace in over 20 years. Zaha has had to slog his way through playing for the gammon and gravy managers of the Premier League for most of his career. And now under Vieira, with a lot of exciting young players around him, he's finding a situation where we might really get to see him take his game to a new level, even at 29. And I think if he stays there, given what he's done for the club, that's that's a statue. That's a statue for me. Came through their academy, left, came back, committed to the cause, kept them up. Yeah, statue. Chelsea forward Callum Hudson-Odoi is weighing up a switch of allegiance from England to Ghana, despite having won three caps. If Ghana could rob him, and I believe Tariq Lamptey is also of uh, Ghanaian descent, and is considering making a change, that could be a lot of fun. Because when you consider the players that Ghana already have, Kudus, Kamaldine, those, uh, Salisu, obviously, to come into that group as well, could be a lot of fun. They could be a lot of fun. Uh, Syria B-side Como and teams in the Greek Super League are interested in signing Jack Wilshire. Just go and play somewhere. Just just go and play somewhere. Uh, Frank Kessie has not decided which club he wants to join when his AC Milan contract runs out. Former Manchester United midfielder Paul Ince says the club should sign Brighton midfielder Yves Basuma to replace Fred in their engine room. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Any midfielder would help at this point. You know, when you have no midfielders, any midfielder uh, should be considered an upgrade. And right now they have no midfielders. Um, Manchester United and Portugal forward Cristiano is attracting the interest of Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich and Roma as he weighs up whether to leave. I'm going to just call absolute nonsense on all of this. Um... Manchester United have off- Manchester City, sorry, have offered 5.5 million plus add-ons for Atletico Mineiro winger Savio. The Brazil inter- Brazil Youth International has also been tracked by Arsenal. He's been linked with Arsenal for a couple of months now. I don't know anything about him. Aston Villa are willing to spend 50 million on a midfielder with Leicester's Nigerian International Wilf Ndidi and Brighton's Mali International Ease Basuma. Among their top targets, 50 million will not get, indeed, in my view. West Ham are planning summer talks with Jared Bowen over a new contract. Uh, this has been the plan for Bowen and his agent since last summer when they went to multiple journalists at The Athletic and said, please write this story. And multiple simpletons wrote the story saying Liverpool were interested. It only ever came from those two journalists. One of them covers West Ham. One of them covers Liverpool. Didn't come from anywhere else. Uh, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund are the latest clubs to keep tabs 
on Armando Broja. Yeah, he's going to just have so much interest. Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Newcastle are all monitoring Calvin Phillips' contract situation at Leeds. The 26-year-old midfielder's present deal is due to end in 2024. He is very, very good. With no disrespect meant to Leeds, he is too good to be playing for a club of Leeds standard right now. He belongs in a Champions League-based club. Uh, Chelsea are focused on signing Jules Koundé. Um, This is Romano just regurgitating stuff that someone else reported last year. Leicester and Belgian midfielder Yuri Tielemans has been urged to snub moves to Liverpool and Manchester United in favour of a move to Chelsea by Cleberson. Who cares what Cleberson has to say? But it is funny that ex-United midfielder Cleberson is telling him, don't go there. Uh, Liverpool are in talks with former England midfielder James Milner over a new one-year contract extension. This again is from Romano. This again is lies. It's just absolute nonsense that he's made up. He has taken what was been said over the weekend after Jurgen Klopp's comments, and he has just gambled that this might happen. Uh, but he is, as we know, a bullshitter. Uh, former Liverpool captain Steven Gerrard is also interested in bringing Milner to Aston Villa. Crack on, Stevie. Get him in the door. Jose Mourinho is interested in bringing Pierre-Emile Heusberg to Roma. Uh, he would actually do very well there. That's a move I could see. That's a better signing than Granit Xhaka. Leicester and Southampton are both in the hunt to sign Bristol City's French midfielder Han Noah Masengo. He's super talented. Super talented player. Now, I haven't watched a whole lot of Bristol this season, so I couldn't tell you how he's been playing, but he is a super talented player. And um, I think he's got a really bright future. I don't know if he's ready to play in the Premier League just quite yet. 25 appearances this season for Bristol. Now he's playing under Nigel Pearson, so if he's playing regularly under Pearson, you'd imagine that he's at least been pretty good from a defensive point of view and a tactical discipline point of view because Pearson will bin players who play outside the very small boxes he tries to put them in. Former West Ham and Chelsea defender Glenn Johnson says the Blues should sign Declan Rice to replace Jorginho. Okay. Glenn Johnson, as good a pundit as he was a player, you know. West Hamron talks with Mark Noble about the English midfielder taking up a football executive role at the end of the season. They're going to keep him in-house. Get him into the academy. Get him working with kids. Aston Villa will listen to offers for Bertrand Traore in the summer. Um, I don't imagine there will be... There will be some offers, but I don't imagine they will recoup the money they spent on him. Pep Guardiola is considering offering Fernandinho a place in his coaching staff. I think Fernandinho said he wanted to go back and play in Brazil for a year, though. Vissel Kobe's former midfielder, sorry, former Spain midfielder, Andreas Iniesta, would welcome returning to Barcelona as a player if the opportunity were to arise. Yeah, I mean, Xavi's always going to try and bring him back. I mean, they've got Dani Alves back. It would make sense to just bring Iniesta back, let him retire at uh, at Barca. It is crazy. He's played, this is his fourth, he's played four seasons. He's played four seasons in Japan. Has it really been that long? Has it really been that long since he left Barcelona? The new season in Japan starts on the 18th of February. He's played three and a half seasons. He, he arrived midway through the 2018 season. He played 19-20-21. So yeah, this will be, be season four. Season five, but it's fourth full season. Um, that is that is a bit mad to me. Um, I also did not know that Kevin Muscat was a manager in the, the J-League. That's interesting. As is Michael Schibbe. Valdo is there. I didn't realise that. Interesting. I haven't watched the J-League in about 
weapon. Six, seven years. Anyway, that is it. That is me for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the games tonight. And um, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.